Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. You're rich. I'm homeless. I'm coming over. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, like gossip, and backbite. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. How many of you have heard this story before? Good chunk of you. How many of you can see the flannel graph in Sunday school? How many of you have no idea what a freaking flannel graph is? Yeah, it's great. I love our church, man. Half the people are like church kids. No, it's a like quarter of church kids, like staying with it. Quarter, like, this is my last stop before I run away from this whole thing. I've deconstructed myself out of most of faith. But a quarter of you are like, I have no idea what's going on. Like, that only leaves three, so I'm not sure what the rest of y'all are. <laughs> Guys, this is a super dangerous story. It's really, really disruptive to the status quo. One of the most subversive things that Jesus does, and we've talked about this before, is eat with the wrong people. He eats with all the wrong people. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? First, these two groups. One, the tax collector. These guys are, are like the worst of the worst. Israel, at this moment in time, has been occupied. And these tax collectors were Jews who sold out their country. Sold them out. They were completely corrupt because they added their own fee to the Roman tax. And the Roman emperors like, would back them up. Rome was taxing at about like 50%. And so the tax collector would add maybe another 10 or another 20%. Tax collectors were one of the two groups at the bottom of the social ladder. And so a tax collector would be sort of like a, I mean, this is a little bit of a stretch, but it's like the vision of almost like an army chaplain or something like sitting down with some terrorist cell that had just attacked the city like for tea. And then you have the sinners Sinners are not like how we talk about sinners. This was actually a very distinct and specific group of people. These were folks that couldn't kind of live up in part to the extra stuff in the law that the Pharisees, who were the religious folks, added on to the law. Again, Rome is in charge. And the Pharisees really was like a reform movement. 
They thought if we could get Israel just to keep Torah, keep the law, the Ten Commandments, keep it all, for one day God might come back and liberate us from Rome. Sort of a holiness reform movement. So if we up the ante so everyone would like follow these priestly rules, they like acted as if every home were a temple because the temple, remember, had been destroyed. And, they, and, and to make sure, they, they still saw themselves in exile like what had happened all the way back with Daniel in Babylon. And so they heaped all of these special laws on to people. And by making every home a temple, and I don't have to get in, don't have time to get into all of the logistics and politics around that, but basically like there was all these extra holiness standards. The poor couldn't afford to do all that. These were folks who were on the outside. It would be like being a part of sanctuary and everyone has to eat at Whole Foods. Like you have to eat at Whole Foods if you're really going to be accepted into the life of like God. This religion for the elites. And it created though basically a situation where it was easy to call those people, those lowly, those poor, those who are sinning, this idea that you're ruining it for the rest of us. You sinners, you've done this to us. You're the reason why God hasn't come back and liberated us. Again, sinners, tax collectors, bottom of the social ladder. Now, I read this then, and most of us tend to do this, and there's a whole psychology around this. We read a story like this, and we go, yeah, I would never do that. We read a story like this, and we're like, yeah, Jesus, classic, sticking it to the man. This is the kind of story I could share with people who don't really love Jesus. Right, this is the one that like sticks it to all of those like those people in that state that have mixed too much politics with X or whatever else. Like those people that we want to push to the side. I would totally do the same thing. I would absolutely be aligned with you, Jesus. And I think we do this because we actually don't have groups in the same way. And we read tax collectors and sinners and we have a hard time transposing these two groups. But for our cultural moment, what if you heard Jesus, you know, telling a story of eating with a pedophile? Or a white nationalist? Or eating with a member of ISIS? How does that make you feel? Maybe even that list triggers like a heroic side to you. You're like, I would still do that. I would eat with those people. I get it. Radical love of your enemy. One scholar says this in reply to you and me, because that's where I go. Hospitality isn't just about welcoming sinners. It's about welcoming people that we think are idiots. <laughs> kind of gets to, to the heart of it. I'm glad my kids aren't here. They would say, don't use that word, daddy. The thing I want you to understand is that meals meant more than they do now, or at least in our culture. They were boundary markers. This has always been true, but it's especially true in the culture that we're reading about here. Maybe a modern day example in our world would have been like segregated drinking fountains. Inferior and superior. It was a way of saying you can't eat here, you can't drink here. One historian writes, in the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God for the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. 
I read that only in that to, you can see why Jesus' inclusion of people who were outside and othered, who are scandalous, who are both lowly and the enemy, it feels scandalous. So a rabbi in this culture, a teacher of Torah, would never have been caught dead in the home of somebody like Zacchaeus. I want you to feel as much as you're able to that pressure. Jesus is not doing the good religious pious thing. He's not. One theologian I read yesterday said Jesus got himself killed, killed because of the people he ate with. For Jesus, meals were not a boundary marker, but a sign of God's great welcome. They were not a way to keep people out, but a way to invite people in. This is what Tim last week, as he set the groundwork for this series that we're doing on hospitality. So back to this text. We read something about Jesus here in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Tim Chester points out there are actually three ways in the New Testament to complete the sentence, the Son of Man came, Jesus came. We read in Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give, him, give his life as a ransom for many. It feels good. Son of Man came to seek and save the lost in Luke 19. It's beautiful. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking in Luke 7, 34. He points out that the first two are statements of purpose. Why did he come? Well, his purpose, why he came, was to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to seek and to save the lost. But the third statement, the third is a statement of method. How did he come? How did Jesus come? If you're here and you're interested in reaching the lost, and we'll get to that word in a minute, if you're here and you're interested in doing the work of justice and mercy in our world, if you're here and you're even slightly enamored with the person of Jesus, and you're like, there is something about his life that I want to apprentice under him. I want to be, a, that means to, to be a disciple of him, to do what he did. If there's something in you that stirs, like I know, maybe I don't often want to do that, but I want to want to do that. It's really important to pay attention, not just to what he came to do, but how he came to do it. And how did he come to do it? Eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. That's how he came to do it. It's not that there aren't other things. Heals on the Sabbath. The way that he just runs up the road, both in his stories and figuratively to the lost and broken. But it is fascinating, and we have talked about this. I remember like four or five years ago, we did a series just literally on eating and drinking. And we explored like how Jesus, is, Jesus used food. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Just Luke alone, 50 references to Jesus and food. Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats at the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus, like we just read. Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with the two disciples in Emmaus and and later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem after he's risen from the dead because resurrection can give you a bit of an appetite. If you can read the Gospels, Arthur Boer said, without getting hungry, 
If you go read the Bible, read the stories of Jesus without getting hungry, you're not really paying attention. Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of this group, tax collectors and sinners. And while I do not think or believe because of the rest of the scriptures that Jesus was actually a glutton or a drunkard, you got to admit he got that reputation somehow. It's like that scene in Acts when the Holy Spirit is poured out and everyone's like, these people must be drunk. Well, obviously they weren't drunk. Obviously they weren't. But you looked at them and you were like, these people are drunk. Something about Jesus and the way he carried himself was like, this dude hangs out with those folks a lot and is in their house a lot. This was Jesus's methodology. This is how he did it. He lived in a culture where a lot of people were hostile to him. We have nothing to learn. <laughs> he lived in a culture where a lot of people were hostile to him. And so how did Jesus walk people into the kingdom? How did he walk people into that way of life? The short answer was one meal at a time. That was his method of bearing truth. That was his method. What we learn from Jesus is that if you want to reach and love those that are hurt by the church and the family of God or had a bad experience in the past and didn't measure up, who were like born into a really broken home and a tough scenario and a really difficult moral or social or economic environment or somebody that for whoever reason wants nothing to do with the love and life of Jesus, the move apparently is open your home or open your heart. Remember, Jesus didn't actually have a home. He was just inviting himself over other people's houses all the time. Seriously, it's like something to pay attention to. We'll get to this in a minute, but hospitality is a sense of, is a, is a, is a in a way that we live, it is a posture, I would argue, of the heart. It is, as Tim pointed out last week, it is love of the stranger. The word hospitality, philoxenos in the Greek is this compound word that philo means love. And xenos is, is family, is brother. Think of the Philadelphia, the birthplace of our nation is the city of brotherly love. So Philadelphia, sorry, Delphia is friendship. Xenos means stranger foreigner, immigrant, refugee, outsider. So if you think about xenophobia, it's the opposite of hospitality. Xenophobia is the fear of the stranger, the fear of the outsider, the fear of the immigrant. Hospitality is literally the love of the stranger. And hospitality, friends, is what turns strangers into neighbors and turns neighbors then into family. Hospitality is a heart posture that flows out of your life and out of your budget and out of your time and out of just the simple, ordinary acts of life. Guys, when I, I was telling you last week and I did it again this week, I wasn't supposed to be on, but Aaron, probably pray for Aaron, he got COVID. And so we're just like praying for him because he was sick. So I jump up here. And I don't know if you can tell, but I have a hard time just like restraining myself to the very plan that oftentimes I'm putting together. So like, let's just go another 10 minutes. And like, some of you are like, yes, I know, Andrew. I, here's why I say this. For me, worship leading is about welcoming. 
Like it is that posture of hospitality, wanting to welcome everybody. This like deep internal sense of wanting to sort of roll out the red carpet or remove the distractions or just hang in a moment or on a chorus a little bit longer, pull up another passage or jump ship to six songs we weren't planning on singing. Like just to create a space and a moment for us to receive the welcome of God and to be welcomed ourselves by God. Hospitality flows from beholding the God who has welcomed us. This is what Tim talked about last week. And maybe this is why followers of Jesus are commanded to continue the practice of hospitality. Because it's simply reflecting the beauty and grace of what God has done for us. It's a few reminders. Romans 12, 13. Paul writes, practice hospitality. The word practice is to a church in Rome. The word practice here is diocontes. One lexicon defines it as to do something with intense effort and with a definitive purpose or goal. Practice hospitality. Do it with intense effort and with a definite purpose or goal. It can be translated and is in some of your translations. Be eager to show hospitality. Be eager to do it. If you're here and you're not a father of Jesus, it does not apply to you. Although I think it's a beautiful practice and will expose you to the life and love of Jesus. If you're here and a follower of Jesus, just command. And we've got to wrestle with that command. And by wrestle, I mean don't find ways to avoid it, dodge it, or say, well, it's different now. Just practice it is what he says to do. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love the without grumbling part. Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. How do you love each other? How does love cover a multitude of sins? Well, offer hospitality to one another. Right? And all the introverts in the like, room, like that, that whole not grumbling part, that was to you. I'm like, <laughs> just playing. <laughs> It's like, stay as late as you want. And what you really mean is like, please leave in the next 10 to 15 minutes. I know I've told this story before, but I only have one life. Corey, um, Corey, my wife, if you've ever come over our house, you know that when the clock, and she'll tell you this at the beginning of the meal, so you're not surprised by this. When the clock strikes 10, suddenly Corey is just gone. She just, she will, she'll like 9.50 or so. She'll be like, hey, guys, so fun hanging out. Andrew's totally down to hang till whenever. This was such a good time. Hugs, kisses, great. Like, I genuinely mean it. She does genuinely mean it. Like, stay as long as you want. I gots to go to bed. And she leaves. So you can do it without grumbling, introverts. You can get out of there. It's like, here they come again. They bring nothing but chips and salsa to home church. Like, you know who you are. Like, come on, ante up a little bit. <laughs> Each of you should use whatever gift you have received. Whatever gift you got. Whether it's chips and salsa, I guess you can do it. Your home, your apartment, your culinary ability, your time, your ramen. Be a faithful steward. Because that is what you are as followers of Jesus, a faithful steward of God's grace. Hebrews 13, keep on loving people as family. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Command, don't forget. It's easy to forget. Don't forget. No judgment, shame, just start doing it. Don't forget. It's such a big deal that in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, the practice of hospitality is a job requirement and a character quality list for elders and leaders. 
You have to practice hospitality in order to lead anywhere in the church. I've heard pastors like being removed for heresy or for weird financial business or for some moral failing. I've never once heard of a pastor being removed for not practicing hospitality. It's like, did you know? Did you know that the pastor hasn't had a neighbor over in like months? We got to have some discipline. We got to sit down and talk with them. I know I'm being, it sounds like I'm being cheeky, but like I'm, I'm dead serious. This has got to be in there. We're shifting our leader covenant this year to reflect this very reality. We are commanded to carry on this practice from Jesus. And let's be honest, it's a great one. It's a great one because it is so pregnant with purpose. There's so much. It's so ordinary. You, everybody here is alive, right? Yeah, it's because you're eating at least, hopefully, two to three times a day. You get that many opportunities to invite people into your life and walk with them and do this practice. You're already halfway there. Just bring a person over. He did it. <laughs> Rosaria Butterfield, who honestly I gleaned so much from this subject from. She's a great writer. She's a fascinating case study in all of this. She was basically this self-professed far-left radical feminist, a lesbian who is a tenured professor at Syracuse University with a specialty in postmodern critical theory and literature. She was writing a book on Bible-believing Christians, and basically the book was to set out to say, Bible-believing Christians are basically the worst. That was her goal. And it's just always sort of a bad goal to try to prove any group that they're like the worst most times, because this is what happens. So I saw them as a, quote, threat and a menace to society. But as part of her research, she actually had to meet a few Bible-believing Christians. Um, and uh, so anyway, the editor for this New York paper set her up for this. She wrote the scathing indictment of this men's conference as everything she was against. And a local pastor wrote in, um, sorry, wrote to her and was really gracious and thoughtful and extended an invite. So wrote to this reporter and said, would you come over for dinner? Would you be up for that? So she felt like, I've got to do some research anyway, might as well go over, right? And so she writes about this, driving into his driveway, sitting there thinking, am I crazy? This guy is the enemy, everything I'm against. So she walks through the front door and she just writes about her experience. And there was just this love expressed as welcome over a meal. And she talks about how this slowly changed her life. She came back for dinner again and then again and then again. She came to Bible study one time for research, and suddenly the for research really did start to become in quotes. She found herself so touched by all this happened. Now, this wasn't like a quick one and done thing. <laughs> so over the course of, I think it was a, more than a year. Long story short, she actually like is now a foster parent and married to a Presbyterian pastor and runs like a Christian commune out of her house. <laughs> she writes this about her experience. Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who lived out ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged. They know, hear this line, that the gospel comes with a house key. 
come on. You got to make this face when you read a line like that. The gospel comes with a house key. Hospitality is just a way of life. It's not entertaining people. It's seeing people. It's not entertainment. It's not the same thing. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Seeing the lost and lonely and inviting them in. And Jesus' day and location, as it still is to this day in the Middle East, it is Jesus, it, it was a normal thing to be hospitable. There were less like cultural walls to overturn. But instead of aiming hospitality like it still happens today in places in the Middle East, instead of aiming it upward and as a way to connect or like get favor for those that were, you know, ahead of you or people you could get something from or people that you wanted to associate with or people who are just easy to be around, people who would like benefit your Instagram feed in some way or your social standing or whatever it was, like, no, it was aimed downward as a way to serve and do justice and to bring others into the life that you enjoy. And that's ultimately what changed everything around him. It was a direct challenge also, and this is where we're going to go this Advent. It was a direct challenge to the forces that push us towards dehumanizing and judging and avoiding the very people that we are called to love. It was how the lost were reached. And so I want to talk about this word lost for a quick second before we close. Some of us have mixed feelings about Jesus' language of the lost. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're like, I think they're talking about me. <laughs> Maybe it feels a little offensive. The more I think about Jesus' language, though, over time, the more I love it. Jesus is incredible. He, he in so many ways, um, is assuming the best. Think about it. Lost people aren't necessarily immoral. Lost people aren't bad. Lost people aren't unintelligent. Everybody gets lost at some point. Everybody gets lost at some point. My mom gets lost all the time. <laughs> lost people rarely want to be lost. Most people don't always know that they're lost. Most lost people I run into are searching for the right path to the right destination. And it makes sense that Jesus would call people who had yet to find their way home lost. Jesus came to seek, to be proactive, to go after, not wait for maybe a lost person to maybe possibly come into my orbit and then maybe if all the timing is right and it fits with my schedule and my lifestyle, I might invite them in. He sought after them. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then we do what he did to seek and to save the lost, to open the door and spread out the welcome mat to the Father's house and invite people in off the street to the Father's table. And if they want to be adopted into the father's family as sisters and brothers and daughters and sons, he did that. He did not coerce them or push them onto them. And how did he do that? He saw them. Week one of Advent. He stopped. 
he allowed himself to be interrupted and he approached them with hospitality in his heart eating and drinking one meal at a time i am convinced more than ever that there is such a deep ache in our world for this. I don't know if it's technology or COVID, all that we went through, the combination of both, but just for people, for the kindness and being sought after and approached and welcomed home, we need this more than ever. I read this the other day, I hope this connects. This was a person, as far as I can tell, pretty hostile to the things of Jesus, at least to certain people who associated with Jesus. I don't think the things of Jesus. She writes this. I want to be asked to come over and help put my friend's kids to bed as casually as they might text their spouse and ask them to pick up milk on the way home. This is like a single 20-something. I want to stop and pick up milk for another friend because I know their spouse hates the grocery store. I want to buy fruit that I don't like because it's on special and I know people who do. I want to pass lemons over the fence and to take my neighbor's bins out when they forget. I want group chats instead of rideshare apps. Calls in the middle of the night because someone's at the hospital lonely or hungry or both. I want to do the dishes in other people's houses. Extra servings wrapped in tinfoil and tea towels so it's warm and when you drop it off a basket, uh, a basket of other people's mending by my couch. I want to be surrounded by reminders that imposing on each other is what we were born to do. You want to know where I see this? Here. I know it's my job so often to challenge. Can I just encourage y'all? I see this all the time right here. Like all the time. And one of the invitations for a healthy culture when you see like some, some, a little bit of fire is to pour fuel on it. And I think we can go further and we can welcome more and greater and better and invite more of us in this room into a culture of deep welcome and openness and hospitality. And so let me end then with this. When it comes to following Jesus, you with me? Last point, when it comes to following Jesus, a lot of us feel trapped. We have bills to pay and aging parents to care for and a marriage to nurture or friends to keep or a car to get inspected or courses to finish or a work or deadline to meet, a medical procedure to face, children to raise, lawn to mow, game to coach, whatever it is. And then we hear of these amazing, heroic, sacrificial, radical things that people are doing for the kingdom of God. Whether it's in history, like St. Francis, who renounced family wealth, or Mother Teresa, who cared for the poor in Calcutta. Or we hear stories within our own church of people who just like throwing themselves at the injustice and brokenness of our day. And we're like, this is what following Jesus is supposed to be like. And we're like, I'm so glad those people exist. And I'm so glad those books are on my mantle. But then it's Monday. <laughs> then it's Monday and you start your long work commute and you face a pile of deadlines or you rush the kids off to school or you got the stack of dirty dishes or the lawn or whatever else and let's admit it we understand like for those of us who are married when Paul was like hey it's better to not get married so you're not like divided you can just focus on kingdom work <laughs> those of you who like Maybe you're not you know, married, but you're just in like a season of life where everything in work has just ramped up and you're like, 
I had thought that I would be living a more sort of radical, heroic life. Radical discipleship on the one side gets pitted against work and home on the other. Being an all-in radical follower of Jesus seems almost like, oh, that's for like those folks, like maybe like the year they just got out of college, which is some of you, so hold on to it. Like being a missionary or nonprofit or any of these sort of big things, those are dreams that are now in the rearview mirror and that's cute, but real life has settled in. If you've ever felt what I'm describing, that the life that you're leading at home and work doesn't have any margin for radical displays of discipleship, then there is this saint that I want to bring to your attention. Her name is Therese. Therese lived a very, very different life than a lot of us, but had the same exact set of challenges. She committed herself to a convent. And she discovered after joining it that it was what a lot of us encounter. Like, when we get our first job or take out our first mortgage, like life gets trapped in routine and she just spent her time trying to navigate these like simple and yet complex relationships. Therese, she had a crisis of spiritual vocation. She wanted to do something heroic for Jesus. But her life in the convent seemed trivial and domesticated. And so there is this moment where her sister, as she gets really sick, asks her to write down what she had discovered because this woman is a saint for a reason. She had like something in her had unlocked and she had become this vibrant force of love and beauty and goodness in the world. And her sister was like, how did you do this living within this really ordinary routine? Like, will you send me this a letter? Will you write this down? Because she had tuberculosis and worried that she might pass away. And what she wrote has become big. These 24 pages have become like the centerpiece of contemplative spirituality. Under the weight of spiritual crisis, she explains what happened. She's reading 1 Corinthians 12, that famous passage, the metaphor of the church as a body. Some are the mouth of the church, the preachers and teachers. Some are the eye, leaders and vision casters. Some are the feet of the church, the missionaries and evangelists. Some are the hands of the church, the priests and the pastors. And she's just going like, I, I don't know what part of the body I am. Anyone feel that way? I don't know what part of the body I am. If you're new to the Bible, again, this really simple image of like there are hands in the Bible and eyes in the Bible. And, and it's meant to go like we all have gifts. And she's going, I don't know what my gifts are. My life is trapped in triviality. I feel like I have no margin and the little margin I do have. I hear messages like radical hospitality. And I'm like, yeah, it sounds nice, but I can't do it. Therese couldn't find anything in 1 Corinthians 12 that fit her life. And then she gets to 1 Corinthians 13, arguably the most famous passage in the Bible on love. Love is patient. Love is kind. And there in chapter 3, Paul makes the observation that love is greater than all the spiritual gifts and the lights come on for her. She was not the hands or the feet or the mouth or the eyes. She was the heart. She would become the affections of the church. She wrote, she would be love I understood, she wrote, that the church, 
That if the church had a body composed of different members, the most necessary and most noble of all could not be lacking to it. And so I understood that the church had a heart and that this heart is burning with love. Then in the excess of my delirious joy, I cried out, oh Jesus, my love, my vocation, at last I have found it. Yes, I found my place in the church and it shall be love. I shall be love. And so she calls her path then doing menial jobs and the simple everyday rhythms that most of us get caught up in. She calls it the little way. I love that. The little way. The little way is to incarnate love in your day-to-day existence. No grand overseas adventures. No speaking to massive crowds. No riding off like Joan of Arc. She had a thing for Joan of Arc. Simply becoming love, incarnating the affections of Jesus right here and right now. The discipline of the little way was to make every act of sacrifice during the day, every look and every word flow from love. We put it into practice and it turns out that it's not little at all. She asks, do you want a spiritual challenge? Do you want to be radical followers of Jesus? Do you want to try to do something truly heroic? Try a little way. Try doing every small thing you do this day with great love. Try waiting in line at the supermarket with great love. Try dealing with an irritating office mate with great love. Try sitting in traffic with great love. Try dealing with your screaming toddler with great love. Try reading your social media feed with great love. Like stop trying to do what you can't and begin to ask the question, how can I? And here we have Jesus, the savior of the world, going, here's the methodology. Eat and drink and freaking welcome people home. And so we're going to sing for a bit. And the goal in our time of singing, goal, I hate to say that. We want to invite the spirit to come and convict however he will convict. But here's the challenge. I think the next couple of weeks, you know, may turn the screws a little more. But Tim mentioned this last week, and it's important to point out. I don't know if any of us disagree with this. There are no like great acts, just small acts of great love. I don't know if anyone would disagree with anything I said. And yet the hard thing, the invitation is to actually do it. To actually do it go where are the people that I need to see am I interruptible am I living a passive life or an intentional life that is seeking and looking and if I like Tim welcomed us to experience last week experience the welcome of God that this doesn't become some like white knuckle, okay, I guess I better do it kind of thing or Jesus will be mad. It's the how could I not? How am I not? Folks, I have so many stories. Handguns on my dining room table. Addicts dressing Christmas trees with my kids. Like, like beautiful stories. And I share that because I have gotten into rhythms and seasons where this has not been at the forefront of my mind where I have not been seeing very well the lost and hurting and broken in my world. All of us are prone to wander and prone to distraction. 
Our world is after our attention. And so Holy Spirit, I want to ask, Lord, that there would be a fresh revival and renewal, a wave of welcome that would hit our family. That the non-heroic, Lord, would just well up. I love St. Teresa's language. It's just the, just the, the little way. The little way. The little way. The simple way. And the way that turns the slog of a supermarket into like a beautiful landscape of opportunity to see and love and serve and bless. Holy Spirit is your, we know, Lord, that you, um, You've taught us, so many of us, that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance, Lord. It is that kindness that we are after. It is that kindness that many of us have like, experienced and tasted and seen. It is that kindness, Lord, that I want all over again to rush through my bones and blood. To be able to see, Lord, the ways that I need to repent of an uninterrupted lifestyle. The ways that I need to repent of not seeing the pain and ache of those around me and being self-obsessed and but virtue signaling that I'm not. Holy Spirit, would we, as we sing of your love, as we sing of the end of that great homecoming, that great feast that we will experience when you welcome us all home, to see you and meet you face to face, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you minister to us? Help us to experience and see and know that homecoming now. I pray that you'd pour out vision on people right now. Maybe you already have, like a vision of a change schedule or a clarity on who to invite in. Pray for that spirit of St. Mr. Rogers to just like, <laughs> I mean it, Lord, just to like permeate our being, the kindness of the Lord. This is where our strength comes from. And so church, I just want to invite you to be open for these last few minutes that we have together. As you feel led, stand. As you feel led, come to the altar and maybe just receive a blessing over what God, you sense God's doing in your life. Or maybe there's some repentance, maybe there's some stinginess, there's some greed, there's some things, not with any shame or guilt. You're like, I wanna break that off, I'm done with that. I wanna mark that moment right now of God beginning to work in me. But might we, with excitement in our bones, with expectancy in our hearts, might we be open to what God wants to do?